1: Welcome to
0: the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with J. Ryan Stackhouse about his book, Enemies of the People, Hitler's Critics and the Gestapo, which has just come out this November with Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan, and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hi, Leah. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So Ryan is a historian of modern Europe, specializing in Nazi Germany and how authoritarian regimes sustain political legitimacy. He earned his PhD with distinction at Florida State University. Enemies of the People, Hitler's Critics and the Gestapo is his first book and builds on his prior research about how Nazi leadership used social policy and political violence to cultivate popular support. In addition to his writing, Ryan also co-hosted the Third Reich History Podcast, where you can also hear a reading of the introduction and opening case study from this book. So Enemies of the People is the subject of our discussion today, a book in which Ryan meticulously explores police case files from the Third Reich in order to determine the nuances and paradoxes embedded in how the Gestapo enforced order in Hitler's Germany. But before we get into the details of the book, I'd first like to ask you if you could just tell us a bit about yourself, what brought you to German history and archival work in the first place? And in particular, what sparked your interest in the Third Reich?
2: Yeah, okay. So I got interested in the Third Reich because I come from a part of Canada where there is a major representation in the armed forces. So when I was growing up, a lot of the veterans of the Second World War would be coming to our school and talking about their experiences around Remembrance Day each year. So out of that, as i Sort of went down the path of becoming a professional historian. This grew into a deeper engagement with really how the society that had been on the other side of the trenches organized itself and why people would involve themselves in that system. Right. Um, so as I kind of worked through this uh, as a uh, as an undergraduate, I looked at I satisfied myself with the understanding of why people would support Nazism because of the Great Depression and because of scapegoating. and uh, But then it sort of ran up against this question of, well, okay, that makes sense for why you would support this, but then you run up against terror. Why would you support a, a, a country that is threatening your life, right? That uh, I couldn't square the circle with that one. So out of this, I then ended up in uh, a history class, you know, looking at like what your master's project is going to be. And I found uh, Robert Galately's book on denunciation. And suddenly I was like, wow, like these files exist. There are actual political police files out there. So I decided that I was going to go and these sounded like great files to work with. And I, I showed up at the archive, right? Uh, ready to do something about denunciation, kind of urban, rural, uh, um, urban rural trends in denunciation. I get the first file on the first day I'm there in the archive and I'm looking at radio criminals who are people who would like listen to the BBC. Now, according to the letter of the law, these people would be off with your heads, right? Like the letter of the law is if you discuss what is going on in the news in public, that's a capital offense. We will kill you if you discuss what you hear on the news. And I read through the file and I see, you know, Oh, this guy has, he's, he's a known complainer at work. And he has been talking about all of these reports about defeats from the front. And uh, you know, he's, He has this very bad reputation privately. Like he's not a good citizen and I'm reading through this and I'm like, Oh my God, like this guy's dead. And then I reach the last page of the file and I I turn over the page and it goes, uh, we confiscated his radio and we gave him a warning and told him to go home and not do it again. I was like, Oh, that was weird. Right. And, uh, I put that aside. I take the next file. And as I start reading through these things, it's like warning, Next one, warning. Next one, warning. Next one, three months in jail. Warning, warning, warning. And I'm like, this, this is not what I was expecting. This is not what the law says should be happening here. This isn't something that I'm familiar with or that I've heard of before. Uh, and that's that's basically how the project started. Uh, Ten years of kind of, well, what about in this area? Does it hold there? Like, where does it change? So,
0: so just to give us some background on this body that you're talking about, the Gestapo. Who were they? What were they composed of? What are the origins of this organization and the role that they played during national socialism in Germany?
2: So the Gestapo were the political police in Nazi Germany. They grow out of the Weimar criminal police. Germany has a, a uniform police service, and then it has an ununiformed detective service. So when the Nazis come to power in 1933, they take this part of the Weimar police, the Weimar detective service that deals with politically motivated crimes. And then they stand it up as its own institution. Uh, the secret state police, the Geheime Staatspolizei, or abbreviated the Gestapo. So the Gestapo then evolves over time. It takes on a number of different roles. So, uh, Abroad, it often forms the leadership in the Einsatzgruppen, Member, key members of the security services will be evolved, involved in the genocide. Uh, then it's also responsible for rear echelon security and ensuring that resistance movements in the occupied territories do not rise up. And then within Germany proper, which is the part that I'm looking at, uh, we find sort of it's much more like a, a detective service still, but it's enforcing these laws around um, both racial policy in terms of uh, the gradual exclusion of Jews from German society, uh, enforcing racial apartheid in terms of. Um, uh, racial purity laws and all of the slave labor that's uh, slave labor that's being brought into Germany, and then also uh, policing Germans themselves to single out the communists and socialists who are these avowed well, and even Catholic Centre Party members who are these avowed opponents of Nazism, and stifling dissent within the broader population. So really we're talking about multiple organizations and multiple tasks. When we talk about the Gestapo, we're talking about the sort of merciless security service in the empire that has been occupied abroad and then the uh, sort of domestic security service that ensures uh, there are no resistance movements and that their dissent is muzzled when we're talking about the Gestapo at home. And there are very different rules if you're uh, what's called a racial comrade, uh, a German who fits into the Nazi image of community, versus uh, someone who's been either politically or racially excluded from that.
0: And you you alluded to this a bit in your discussion of how you got interested in, in these these files, which is this idea of selective enforcement, which is a central concept you discuss in the book. So, how would you characterize this? style of policing and its implementation as it crystallized during the 1930s and then changed over time into the 40s?
2: So I can't really speak to the Weimar period uh, particularly well in terms of how enforcement unfolds. Uh, There are other people who've dealt with that. What I found when looking at the Nazi period is there is... uh, well. Two two real things are happening, right? On the one hand, you have the evolution of the Gestapo as an enforcement authority in its own right, removed from the remainder of the justice system and the creation of a sort of sphere of what other scholars have called police justice, that's distinct from what they call ordinary justice that occurs through the courts. So the courts begin to deal with punishment, the Gestapo begins to deal with anything that's defined as prevention. And those are dealt with in very different ways. And a a whole system of kind of regulations and directives and ideology grows up about about which system you get fed into depending on what you do. So on the one hand there's the growth of the power of the Gestapo. What was most what was more interesting to me and what was newest to me in the research that I did was this idea of selective enforcement within that. So the Gestapo are carving out this authority to be able to determine what is prevention and what is punishment, and we deal with prevention and you deal with punishment, so that they can selectively enforce laws that govern criticism. The tasks that have been set to the Gestapo are all encompassing, right? By 1936, they are being told you are responsible for preventing anything that may endanger the authority of the state. And everything, all activity has to in some way conform or contribute to uh, the people's community. Now, if that sounds too big and too expansive to be realistic, that's because it was, and the Gestapo recognized this. And from the moment they begin to set down actual laws governing what you can and can't say they have to develop this new policy of like well we can't if we apply if we apply this blindly we're going to be punishing somebody who may be a, a loyal german or even a party member who is drunk at the bar and complaining and we're going to be treating them the same as one of these targeted groups that we see as a threat to germany like a communist or a jew or someone who's roma or sinti and that that will threaten our legitimacy. So this policy evolves to compensate for that. Um, the the real core takeaway of the book and the big picture around this idea of selective enforcement is that the Gestapo begins to selectively enforce laws based on their perceptions of political reliability. So. In this sense, political reliability is measured on what contributions you are making to the realization of a people's community, and also your standing based on your identity in, in, in that vision, right? So some identities are like if you're a party member, thumbs up. If you are a communist or a Jew, automatically excluded. If you're an average German, you're you're kind of and you start to criticize the regime, you're in the middle here, and we're going to have to look at you very closely. But we have measures for whether or not we eventually determine that you're reliable, and therefore you deserve a warning, or you're a subversive, and you need to be punished to mend your ways. So what we see that comes out of this is that the same actions end up as either punishable subversion, or forgivable momentary weakness, as it's called, depending on your classification as a subversive or a supporter. And this allows the regime to, to basically suppress dissent without risking backlash because the regime is showing we we understand that uh, you're not who we're looking for. You're not a threat. We're looking for real threats and we're punishing real threats. But you, good German, go home and, and you know, don't do this again, right? Um, and the, the ultimate effect of this is basically that you you focus the deterrent violence against the targeted minorities mm-hmm. and you reintegrate the supporters from the social majorities with these warnings. And because of that, you can, you can even build support by linking the terror and the persecution of these minorities to the improvements that you're promising to the social majority. Mm-hmm. It's a very high level kind of like the dynamics of it, but big picture, that's uh, that's how you manage to shut people up without making them feel threatened.
0: Indeed, and you're and making those who sort of toe the line to sort of err towards the side of, of being part of the, the majority group. Um, and, and to the subject of of this enforcement, I was also interested by an article that you mentioned by this state court counselor, Walter Hamel, who suggests that the separation between public and private spheres needs to be eliminated in order to rid of this op- opposition that you mentioned. So in order to achieve this, this goal. Um, of the people's community and its vision the the division between public and private needed to be removed so how does this attitude or ambition play out in the tactics used by the gestapo all
2: right well it's it's really interesting because that point in 1935 is where they're starting to run into a crisis about well how we've created a new law that basically says minor complaining is illegal how are we gonna make sure that we're not just arresting everybody? So if we if we take a step back because, it, to put this in context, right? In 1933, when the Nazis come to power, they suspend the constitutional protections under the Weimar Constitution. So you no longer have right to assembly, you no longer have right to uh, freedom of expression or protection against unreasonable search and seizure. Essentially, the entirety of the Nazi period occurs under a legal state of emergency where you have no constitutional protection. So under this, then there is a second decree passed that says, and we're going to arrest people and put them in concentration. It doesn't say concentration camps, but we will arrest people and intervene against anything that may threaten uh, Th- that may threaten the regime. And so, this is where this first phase of revolutionary violence comes from, where you have party activists from uh, the brown shirts, the so called stormtroopers, the Sturmabteilung, and uh, the SS, uh, Himmler's, uh, Himmler's paramilitary political group, uh, the Schutzstaffel, the Protection Service. These activists begin going around and having a reckoning. So, they know from the Political street fighting during the 1920s and 30s. Who the political opponents or communists are in their neighborhood, or they know the neighborhood, uh, the neighborhoods where that are communist, and they begin to just go in and round people up as police auxiliaries under these new new laws, uh, or well, new decrees that have effectively suspended the law, and this very quickly begins to culminate in a backlash so that by early 1934 um, the Reich Minister of the Interior and uh, Goering the Prussian Minister of the Interior uh, which is significant is the most it's the largest province in Germany and therefore it's uh, it's also happens to be the one that sets legal precedent for the rest of the country they're both really concerned that this activity by uh, going around basically arresting people with impunity, reports of abuses in these camps starting to leak out, um, this will threaten state authority. And the population is starting to go, hey, we we voted for you to try and restore law and order. And this, this doesn't seem like law and order. So in early 1934, they begin passing these new laws to try and uh, one, get rid of the camp system, and two, begin to formally bring criticism of the government under uh, under law so that it's a criminal offense that is dealt with through the courts because if it's dealt with through the courts fine if it's dealt with by a bunch of activists who are reporting to who knows who and and acting on their own authority that that is not the public does not want this so they, they go through a, a couple of different laws that they try and uh, develop to do this. They end up on one that says, basically, any subjective opinion statement that criticizes the government, criticizes an individual politician, criticizes an initiative that they're making, or calls into question their competence or goodwill is illegal and punishable by prison. And that is basically all criticism of the government. Even all criticism becomes illegal. So when we arrive at this point where you initially talked about the the article that Walter Hamels publishes, we've created a law that says all criticism is illegal. And we've gone around and we destroyed all the organized resistance. And now we're starting to look at, okay, well, how do we we move into the policing of the rest of society and kind of, uh, you know, we don't want this criticism. We're reacting to it, but uh, we can't. We can't lock everybody up. So um, Hamel's article is about laying a sort of theoretical legal basis for why that law is, in fact, based on an entirely new line of legal reasoning that's coming out of these emergency directives that have suspended the constitution. And so what he says is basically any any activity in the new germany needs to in some way represent the organic indivisible will of the people because nazism is a popular movement and because nazism is concerned that it should be seen to be a popular movement that represents the will of the people that means that basically in our new society our laws need to be about orienting people toward those act- toward activities that advance goal of community and advance this idea that we're all one organic unity that thinks and acts together. So Hamels gets very technical and he goes, hey, this decree, it suspended the constitution. That means that you don't have this kind of liberal idea that your own, your Your life is your own life. It's our new Nazi idea that your life is part of this larger collective. And if you are doing things in your private life that don't advance these collective goals, then that's not okay anymore. The liberal distinctions between public and private don't exist anymore. And so moving ahead, we're going to be enforcing laws on the basis of whether or not your activities support the realization of Nazi goals. And the big picture that they're looking at is this idea of establishing a people's community. That's the ideology that sort of gives purpose and shape to all of these
0: initiatives in the background. My next question is then with this idea of the people's community, there was, of course, this anxiety toward toward preserving it. So, with the onset of the war, how did the way that the Gestapo operated change? And in particular, I'm interested in how did the renewed concern with the stab in the back myth from World War One continue to haunt the way that leadership operated? How did this stab in the back myth continue to rear its head?
2: All right. Well, the stab in the back is really what is driving the idea that you do need to police criticism. By 1939, uh, the regime believes that the reason Germany lost the First World War is not because of the British blockade. It's not because of the hunger winter of 1917 and the collapse of social cohesion as as people are basically beginning to starve to death. They believe that, and there is a narrative that is established over the course of, of the Weimar Republic, that the fighting front was undefeated in the field and that they were stabbed in the back by an unreliable home front who had been subverted by social democrats, by communists, by left-wing Marxist movements, and that but for this subversion on the home front, Germany could have remained in the field either indefinitely or uh, at least come to far better terms rather than the collapse and subsequent humiliation of Versailles. So with this core concept in mind, as Hitler begins to prepare for war, he finds it absolutely necessary that all discussion of defeatism, of uh, potential surrender, be completely silenced. This this is not something that can happen because look what happened in 1918. It will embolden the, the criminals and thugs, the rascals, as he calls them, and they will then unleash another stab in the back. We will be defeated. We must silence dissent to have internal unity during a conflict. So by this point, the Gestapo has already been carving out that parallel sort of police justice. They've been moving from recommendations to increasingly holding information back from the judiciary. And in 1939, they get these new powers from Hitler, where they're expressed in a document called The Principles of Internal State Security During the War that's prepared for, by Reinhard Heydrich and it says in the first line which is the line that people traditionally focus on you will go you will go out and anything that potentially threatens morale you must crack down on immediately ruthlessly and then in lines 2 and 5 it then goes on to say but if there's like some good reason why people would be criticizing the war. Let's say they were bombed out of their apartment, or they had a brother who was killed at the front, or they had a son or a family member who in some way is, is you know caught up in the war, or they're suffering because of rationing and in some way struggling as a result of the war in a way that makes sense. And the term that they use here is actually psychological understanding. Uh, Heydrich, the hangman, tells his officers to go out and ensure that racial comrades are handled with psychological understanding. And he tells them, so shut them up but warn them, educate them, connect them with their local party office, ensure the appropriate ideological oversight. And these warnings, they shouldn't just be about trying to scare people. They should be about trying to, they should lead to what he calls internal fortification, basically renew their faith in the ideology, reintegrate them back into the people's community, ensure that there's the necessary oversight so that they're not you know, continuing to criticize us and that we do keep an eye on them and that this is a, a, what he calls a one-time error, and an entgleisung, rather than an indication of a subversive project. But uh, yeah, the, the emphasis is very much on the idea that you should be reintegrating people to ensure unity during the war. Now, against this, the rest of the principals say you need to go out and you need to uh, engage in in ruthless a ruthless repression and the gestapo officers come back and go hey what do you mean by this and he sends out a second directive and he goes by that i mean you might be you might have to execute them like basically the lower gestapo officers go can you can you give us some paper on terms of what you mean by this some some guidance and he goes yeah no i mean kill them just kill them and the Gestapo have received a a new power called uh, uh, special treatment. Uh, There's uh, an interesting couple of cases where they they exercise this new power immediately after the war, and there's an exchange back and forth with the Justice Department. But long story short, what ends up happening is that they gain this new power to execute people, who are deemed to be such a threat, that they need to be they need to be killed in the name of prevention. So again, this applies to these, these edge cases, these extraordinary, these uh, excluded minorities. And I keep using the terms majorities and minorities here. Uh, when, I, when I say that, when I say majority, I mean, 91% of the population. And when I say minority, I mean, 9% of the population who were card carrying members of opposition par- parties, or they belong to an excluded uh, ethnic or ethnic ethno racial group, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, these two, these two very different ways of approaching it are captured in, in this policy document and then put into practice. And you see the Gestapo immediately begin to, uh, exercise control over most enforcement, resolving most of it with warnings, at least where criticism is concerned. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of remarkable because if you Take the document at face value, line one. The emphasis is very much on uh, on sort of deterrent violence. So yeah, this there is this deterrent aspect to it as well, that the, the executions that do happen and the punishments that do happen should be widely reported as a way to discourage others from criticizing the government or engaging in these activities that might threaten national unity. But at the same time, The propaganda ministry is working with the Gestapo to write up the announcements of executions and punishments in a way that it shows, oh, look, this person was a communist, or this person was uh, involved in this for years and years and years, or this person was targeting individuals and trying to influence a broader audience against the state. So on the one hand, they are deterring people by showing if you do step out of line, there is, there is a point that we will kill you. But at the same time, they're communicating, we are not focused on you. We're focused on these organized resistance groups. We're, we're focused on uh, racial minorities. We're focused on slave labor. We're focused on the groups that we have told you and came to power on the promise of dealing with, right? We, we're, we're targeting the real threats, as it were. We're targeting people who are excluded from the community. So as long as you're within that, you know, you don't have to worry, right? So again, it's very it's very complicated and sophisticated in how they approach this.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over thirty-five different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: Exactly, and and that's also fascinating to me how this um, the in group is reinforced in its status as the in group, in terms of this potential for rehabilitation as a response to, um, you know, potentially suspicious or subversive behavior. And I was also interested in in your book, you you talk about many case studies and about how different um, markers of an I- identity or gender um, might affect the way an individual was treated. So one that sticks out in my mind is of this 15-year-old girl who was investigated because she wrote a series of love letters to a British pilot that were discovered, although she's ultimately found to be a quote, uh, an early bloomer, unquote. So this offsets her, her treasonous suspicions. So based on, on this and the other examples that, that you looked at through your research, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how Different aspects like gender and age and class affected the way in which Gestapo handled potentially subversive behavior.
2: Yeah, so Maria is hands down one of the weirdest cases that I came across in the course of preparing this book. But uh, as, as you point out, she, there's this, this great story whereby she has an imaginary romance with a British pilot she reads about in a magazine. And then the Gestapo find these letters along with some stenography notes that she's taken home from work and begin to think that she's been recruited by a Romeo parachute agent to spy on the German arms manufacturing industry where she's working on her work year. So um, the the key point, though, that you raised in the way that the Gestapo ultimately views her is as essentially a, a silly young girl. So gender begins to play a real role in how, who is political and what is political and therefore what is punishable. Right. Um, and these, these gender prejudices really do begin to, uh, to shape enforcement from the outset. Um, so there are a number of mitigating factors like this that, can shape whether or not the Gestapo will view your actions as political or as somebody who's not who is apolitical and therefore not acting as a subversive. You still will need to be warned and educated that hey, you can't say things like you just said. But your actions will be essentially treated as as an apolitical mistake um, and and you'll be corrected, right? So, one of the big ones here and that's that's Fascinating is the way that gender will overlap with prejudices around politics, right? Because uh, we talked about the, the targeted minorities. If you are a woman, you're essentially, because of the ideology of Nazism, seen to be an apolitical creature, uh, the way that they think about women in national socialism is as mothers of the nation and therefore not really involved in the public sphere. Men are involved in the public sphere. Men should know better because, they're, because they should be schooled in the world of politics. They should be the ones who are involved in these things. But on the flip side, this means that gender affords a very powerful protection to many women. Uh, So Maria's case is one example, uh, where ultimately, it is determined, she, she is writing out and out criticism of Hitler. So on the one hand, she's young, she's 15, when this is happening. But on the other hand, she's a woman. So she is treated as essentially engaged in a girlish flight of fancy. And all of these things that she's written about, Oh, you know, she has a manifesto about how she is an English woman and she's going to build an ideal utopia with dear Tom the bomber pilot after the war is over because the British are going to win. Uh, all of these things that would get you definitely get you a a sentence if you were a, a man of that age, uh, then she gets off the hook for, her, right? Um, there are other cases where uh, the husband will stand as a, a proxy for the political reliability of the wife as well. Uh, there are some really interesting cases there where uh, in one instance, a, uh, uh, it's, this one also sort of overlaps with class. There's uh, a woman who has been listening to radio reports and they are highly critical, and they discuss some some very, very uncomfortable defeats that the, the Nazis have been experiencing. It's late in the war. It's after the Battle of Stalingrad where they would normally be punishing any public discussion of defeats. and Instead of acting against her, they note that her husband is a party member. They note that he is a captain in the Wehrmacht and that he is in frontline service with a a headquarters unit. And then they actually go back through the final report. I have the draft report where they're like, hey, this guy's an officer right? And then they go back and in the final report, you can see the station leader has marked it up and gone like, no, 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 no. you can't mention that he's an officer, right? Uh, I, I presume because in the classless ideal Volksgemeinschaft, people's community, class should not play a role, right? So um, you can't give differential treatment based on that, but it's, it's there in the background. So because the husband is seen as loyal, the wife is seen as the wife is seen as loyal. Um, age is another really interesting mitigating factor that will often assert itself in the files. Uh, if you are an old crankpot and you are continuously criticizing the government and then the Gestapo will essentially just ignore you and say, Oh, this person is old and infirm and they're basically stuck in their ways. They still have a, a very, uh, I don't know what to call it, but like early 20th century attitude toward uh, elders, in that they, although they are building the new Germany, they recognize that many of the people that they are dealing with are a product of the old Germany and simply too old and set in their ways to change how they think about the world. And so long as they are an isolated old crankpot, then. You know, this is not in the public interest to punish an old man. We'll just ignore him and uh, and leave him to complain on his own. And uh, because he's too old, he's too old to get with the program. Uh, all of these things were surprising to me when I initially encountered them, but they ultimately they sort of stand to reason. On the one hand, either because of the gender views of the movement itself, or because of this idea that the Nazis want to be seen to. Be creating a new community, and if you go around basically persecuting like opas and omas, right? That's not a good look for for a group that's trying to establish a new community. So you might have to move past these people, but you you ultimately have to make allowances for their infirmity or their uh, or or, or their simply the fact that they're they are set in their ways, which was again not not a level of understanding that I was expecting from the Nazis, right?
0: Hmm yeah that does that does square. And I, I'm also interested in going back to to the issue of of how, for example, Maria was just dismissed as going on a flight of fancy, that women weren't taken seriously as political actors. But I was wondering if you saw examples of women getting punished for subverting the expected gender role that they should be fulfilling. So perhaps in terms of uh, perhaps in behaving subversively in the political sphere, talking about a political subject, was that something that received any sort of explicit punishment or was it something that was simply reprimanded?
2: Okay. So this is, I did not get enough of a sample to really make this a finding, right? But there is a case where there is a single woman who is not married, who does not have a husband to stand for proxy and does not fit into this vision of uh, women as mothers of the nation, that her brother is killed, okay? He's on the Eastern Front, he's a frontline soldier, he's killed, and as a result of this, she uh, begins to use the Nazi flag as a foot warmer at work. And this is a huge problem, as you might understand, using the symbols of the state to rub your feet on and saying things like, oh, you know, the flag is good enough for my feet, ha, 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 does not go over well with the Gestapo or her coworkers. And when you start to look at the statements around her, you can see that her coworkers see her as sort of uh, an opinionated woman, difficult to get along with. Like all of these sort of prejudices of like you know women should be, you know, a, domestic and supportive and like not not assertive. Like all of these early century kind of attitude gender norms, right? And so, well, I did not get a whole lot of exp- whole lot of examples like that. Uh, there, it did seem to play a role there. However, uh, there's also a, there's a politically complicating factor in that as well because she was a member of the Catholic Center Party. This is one of these politically uh, marginalized groups. So, and she had a reputation for repeated criticism. But in most cases, you would uh, so the the activity is particularly uh, it's an egregious offense for the, for the Gestapo to use your, to put your feet on the flag. And, uh, and she's a Catholic, a card carrying member of the Catholic center party, former member, and, uh, she has a reputation for complaining. So there were a lot of political factors complicating that, but you can see that there, while she as a single woman who's difficult to get along with is prosecuted. There's another single woman who's an opera singer who fits in one of the, like an approved, uh an approved um and also worth noting this woman is an account manager so she has more influence than um, might be for than I saw in other cases right um compare this to the case of an opera singer who makes out and out statements from foreign radio that like Nazi heads will roll after the war but then presents herself as uh one is slightly younger two presents herself as uh, emotionally perturbed by the reports Uh, And, you know, has good connections with uh, a member of of the SS. She is given a warning at a time when there are no more warnings uh, in, in 1944 after the Battle of Stalingrad. So... It, uh, it does, whether or not you fit into the image of what a woman should be definitely plays a role, uh, I I would say, but I just didn't have the sufficient data to really dig into that. It would be a definite area to follow up on, right?
0: Yeah, very curious to hear about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, And then I wanted to move on towards sort of the, the end of your book, which is looking at Germany after the Battle of Stalingrad. And of course, that is a big turning point, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how this served as a turning point to affect policy and the way in which the quote unquote people's community was protected well
2: after nineteen forty three the there, there are a number after as a result of the Battle of Stalingrad or right around Stalingrad, there's a number of military setbacks that change the calculus of the war. Germany loses the strategic initiative. They are very concerned about what's going to happen, whether we're going to lose or not. Um, Other military historians can cover that for you in greater, greater detail here. The tie-in with society from the war and society piece there is that all of a sudden slave labor rebellion becomes a great concern. The priority one, like Hitler sets across, uh, excuse me, Hitler sets aside an entire elite tank battalion to crush any potential uh, slave labor uprisings that may occur as a result of this shift in the fortunes of war. So all of a sudden, the Gestapo go from their top priority being the suppression of dissent during the war to prevent the stab in the back, to policing what at this point has become every 10th German worker. uh, is a slave laborer that may potentially serve part of some kind of fifth column. So what you see ends up happening is on the one hand, the Gestapo turns their primary focus away and the caseload for opinion falls off a cliff. But it's not because opinion and dissent is not policed anymore the authority for that policing is simply delegated down a level to the party. From what I was seeing, far more reports start to come up through the party system. You start to see a, an auxiliary policing role taken on by uh, party functionaries. And this is also captured in policy. Uh, it's an initiative that Josef Goebbels is uh, working on around the time of the total war speech during the, the collapse after Stalingrad. And uh, by the end of 1943, after you've seen the several fire bombings, and there are these concerns being expressed about, well, I mean, Italy falls, Mussolini is overthrown. And so clearly, dissent cannot just be ignored. It's just the Gestapo have to focus on slave labor. And so instead, this policy emerges that, okay, the party will take the initial investigation. They will be the ones who handle what they call energetic rebukes. And then only the cases that are appropriate for punishment will be sent up to the Gestapo. Now, parallel to this, Reinhard Heydrich is assassinated in Operation Anthropoid, or Anthropod, excuse me, and then is uh, replaced by Ernst Kaltenbrunner. And Ernst Kaltenbrunner, like i Never thought I would say this about Reinhard Heydrich is Carlton Brunner is a hardliner compared to Heydrich's approach to domestic dissent. And he is coming in and saying we need to basically tear apart German society and, uh, you know, Trace every rumor that emerges right back to the source and execute anybody that comes up like that. And uh, you know the the educated classes, the chattering classes, have had too much leniency for too long, and we need to crack down on them. And anyone who's influential, we all oh, like off with their heads, basically, right? And the Gestapo push back against this. And go, hey! If we like, no way, we can't do this. This is too much. And he, you start to see this exchange in a series of uh, memos uh, that are coming down directives as the situation is getting worse and worse and worse over fall 1943, with Kaltenbrunner pushing for more radical policing and repeatedly expressing frustration that the Gestapo is not taking a more brutal approach. So, uh, what? the end result of what you see is that the party essentially takes over responsibility for selective enforcement. And the cases that they end up deciding to pass on to the Gestapo start to immediately be approved for far harsher sentences. So instead of this clemency and this system disappearing, it just moves down a level. And so I can't track it anymore because it's not in the files I'm looking at, but it is there. And then you see that capital offenses actually rise remarkably. Uh, by 1943, essentially, capital offenses go from one in 20 offenses, just charged under a potential capital offense, like defeatism or conspiracy, that rises to 10 to, to 15%. And then by 1944, it is one third of cases uh, are, are being charged under capital offenses. Now, at the same time, Case load is dropped by three quarters, seventy six percent down. All of that's being dealt with at a much lower level. So uh, you get what I call rubber stamp review, where these party functionaries will go out, they'll investigate a case, they'll prepare a preliminary report, and then they'll send that to the Gestapo. The Gestapo will prepare it for the courts, or they will they will essentially make the records prepared by the party official for the justice system and just hand it off. So it's a uh, it's interesting. There's more work there to be done if the sources can be found, because it, it, it is clear from the files that I found that it is there and that the party is playing a much greater role. The policy is there, but there simply wasn't time to completely clarify it in, in the scope of this book. So.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, there are definitely limitations of time and, and of just simply, um, the number of files you would need to sort through. Um, I want to talk a bit about sort of how you close off the book. You, you look at a case study in the post-war years with Gerhard Dahmen and sort of the assignment of, of blame and, and the distribution of, of responsibilities or, or how that was even um, recognized in the post-war years. Um, and you also take a, a broader look at these this interplay of terror and popularity. And since your research looks also at the wider picture of how totalitarian regimes gain and maintain support. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about what insights this project brought in thinking about this concern with how regimes are able to maintain support despite the terror that they bring.
2: Right. Well, Domin is an interesting character. Um, he he sort of he came out of the denazification files that Christian Gropp Grau- directed me to toward the end of the project. It was really hard to piece together what was happening in 1944 to 1945, because as soon as the Allies arrive on the border, the Gestapo decentralizes, record keeping becomes much spottier, and they basically completely change the way that they operate. Uh, They start to... Uh, they they maintain control during the fall where there is a massive crisis, uh, the fall crisis with mass arrests. And then once the counterattack at Ardennes sort of stabilizes the situation, they begin to process people and they go through a period of mass releases. But essentially what they start to do, um, arrests and forced labor using the other structures that Ian Kershaw has outlined that regiment. Uh, society during this final sort of reckoning, the arrests feeding people into those structures begin to be used to discipline dissent during the final collapse. But again, it's different because if you're slave labor, then you'll just be killed if you're found to be out of line at that point, Um, if, if you can't be controlled. So... The system sort of persists until the end like this. And there's another interesting way that they decentralize to maintain bureaucratic oversight instead of just falling into collapse during the final months. And that is where Gerhard Domn appears, because as these mass arrests that have occurred in the second wave, you have to you have to sort through the people in the prison at, at at the end of at the end of the war, at the end of the day. You have to decide, are these people like Hitler talked about in 1939 that we need to kill so that they don't become the next generation of socialists and communists like, uh, rascals, that's the word who signed us up for Versailles and created all the problems of Weimar, et cetera, et cetera. Or are they just somebody who was fed up with the war and spoke at a turn or refused to forced evacuation and is, does not need to, does not need to be killed. Right and so gerhard Dahmen is responsible for that and is responsible for making the decisions about who gets transferred to a concentration camp to be held and killed and who gets released during these mass actions particularly as uh, as it approaches his uh, his station and you see that repeated across the countries it goes along and it's worth pointing out most germans are released and most of the executions are involving foreign workers rather than Germans. And the Germans who are involved are again part of these excluded minorities. Regardless, Dahmen, after the war, begins to be uh, investigated because he was a Gestapo leader. And what ends up happening is he says, oh, no, no, no. All of this selective enforcement that was occurring, that was me as a resistor from within the system. And Uh, he he encounters uh, the only person who manages to challenge him on this. He's, he goes in front of the denazification panel in rate. And the only person who manages to challenge him on this is uh, uh, Hans von Dalen, who is a communist who, uh, you know, caught up in the 1935 initial arrests for being a party member uh, then is preventatively detained in 1944, because of that previous conspiracy charge, and then transferred to Sachsenhausen concentration camp, because as Daumann admits, under a, sort of a, a cross-examination with Hans von Dahlen, he couldn't, Dahlen's case couldn't be processed before uh, it was time to move everybody out of the prison because the Allies were arriving. And so while Dahmen is there, and he has all this support from members of the community, pro- predominantly Protestant circles, like people who are saying, oh, you know, we were Freemasons and we started a secret lodge. But he said, ah, we won't, don't worry, don't worry. I won't actually punish you. You guys have to disband, but I'm not going to take any action against you. Or a former school teacher whose son becomes involved in anti-Nazi propaganda. He, domin intervenes on his behalf and goes, hey, like, here's, here's what you should say. And here's what your son should say to navigate the system so that he gets a warning instead of being punished. Right. Um, He has all these character witnesses of cases where he has essentially basically just engaged in the policy of selective enforcement. Here's a valuable German who's primarily, who who fits our image of, of what a racial comrade should be. And here's what they need to say so that they get a warning and they get released. And Hans von Dalen, who is caught up in because he's one of these minorities at the end of the war, is not processed and is not released and gets sent to a concentration camp. and so he he calls out damen on this in the middle of a in the middle of a panel in a postwar uh, uh, post-war investigation and it's some real, high drama. Like there's another point where a woman breaks into the room and it's like, you know, you, you, you beat me and like, you're, you did nothing. And the officers abused me. And um, he, he basically dismisses her and then her husband comes in and people, they have to be taken out of the room. And um, it's, it's a real, these, these denunciation panels could have, uh, could be very tense because you have the persecuted, Confronting face to face the people who were responsible uh, for for feeding them into the system of terror. What's remarkable out of all of this is that Dahman's portrayal of what he had done, of all of these selective enforcement decisions that he had enabled, he manages to present that as resistance from within the system, and he manages to convince a panel of uh, that includes communists, socialists, Christian Democrats and uh and then like national liberals uh basically everybody who was everybody was targeted and uh it actually requires the the uh representative for uh the representative for denazification special representative for denazification for the entire uh entirety of north rhine westphalia to step in and say no you cannot completely exonerate someone who Professionally terrorized people, we put people in category three, which essentially means that you your assets are frozen and you're not allowed to work in a position of responsibility in future that has management responsibilities. Uh, if we if we're putting denouncers in category three, you can't completely exonerate a Gestapo official who was professionally terrorizing people. Uh, just and you can't do it and. They even then, they still come to a compromise of putting him in category four, which means that he 's a not a lesser offender but uh, i forget i forget the categ- uh, the name for the category, but it just means that they won 't pay his pension that 's the only punishment that he faces, and uh, then he 's released back into society and um it's uh it's it 's really remarkable because in the post war era. They emphasize this sort of respectable anti-communism and this attempt to do what was only what was absolutely necessary for the security of the state, and selective enforcement becomes one of the planks in their post-war legal defense strategy. So, again, more interesting stuff to be discovered there. The denazification files are amazing, but uh, a whole different whole different project waiting waiting to happen there in what's been captured in North Rhine-Westphalia. But uh, from that, there's there's a lot more that you can look at about how how popular dictatorships sustain themselves, and I I touched on this at the beginning, and uh, but I'll, I'll revisit it here. It's this idea that uh, the violence that does occur, it's focused on minorities. It's it's not about uh, it's not about everybody, right? And it's communicated in a way that everybody understands that the groups that you're focusing terror on are the groups that everybody voted to suppress right like when people voted for the nazis they voted for a counter to the quote unquote judeo bolshevik conspiracy for a folk, uh, for a counter to cultural marxism for a counter to you know all of these groups that were seen as subverting good nationalist german unity and as posing a threat to the potential future of the country and so when the Nazis go out and they perform these harsh deterrent forms of violence, they ensure that they are communicating, look, this terror is against the people that we said it would be against. And when you run afoul of the law as a, an otherwise upstanding German racial comrade, right? You are brought in and you are given a warning, and but you're not given a warning that's intended to terrify you. You're given a warning that's intended to reaffirm your belief in the ideology. And like I said, connected with your local party office to ensure that there's, there's follow up. That doesn't happen very often. But the idea that the warning is there to reaffirm your faith in the movement, that does. It's not just about scaring people. So the big picture that I took away from this is That by focusing violence against targeted minorities while reintegrating supporters, what you can do is you can suppress dissent broadly without risking backlash. And by focusing terror against minorities that the social majority agrees are a threat to the nation, you can actually perversely build support for the popular movement at the same time. Because the people that you're targeting, they're the threats to Germany. We know you're not a threat. We know you're one of us. Come back to us. We're only targeting them. And so you 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 deepen the lines between the in-groups and the out-groups, and you link political persecution to the realization of political promises. And that is, that is the evil genius of selective enforcement.
0: Well, these are some difficult and very important conclusions. And I really appreciate all of your hard work in, in laying this all out and was really a fascinating book to read. Um, but before I let you go, I know I've kept you for a bit. I wanted to ask you uh, what you're working on next. You gestured towards some new projects that perhaps need to be done. Um, but I- I'm wondering what's, uh, what's next on the docket.
2: As of right now, there is a chapter in final proofs phase Uh, with John Mikhailchik's uh, edited collection on the annotated edition that the Institute for Contemporary History released of uh, Mein Kampf. And so I've co-written a chapter in that with Nathan Stoltzfus on how the use of political violence as a communication strategy in a contested monopoly of violence is used to build support for mass movement. Uh, so there's a lot more in there about, again, how the Nazis understand uh, the, the psychological framework about how they frame violence and how they portray violence to the public in, in ways that build their popular support. So I encourage you to check it out. It's coming out soon and there is a lot of other really great work in there. So uh, it, it should be interesting read, hopefully.
0: Great, I look forward to reading it. And I wanna thank you so much for joining us today. And um, looking forward to reading all of the new material that's coming up.
2: Thanks, Leah. It's been a pre- <laughs> thanks, Leah. It's been a pleasure, and uh, yeah, great to be on the other side of the microphone. Thanks.